Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview, I'm joined by Stephen Semler, the co-founder of the Security Policy Reform Institute, a progressive grassroots funded US foreign policy think tank. Stephen Semler, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Edward. Before we dive into the questions about foreign policy and the issues that exist there, and there are many to, to have a conversation about, why did you start this institute, this think tank? What made you say, this is something, a space that's missing in politics, and, and I think this is the way to really fill it and give people the content and the policy ideas that are really lacking in America? Great way to start an interview, first of all. Uh, the reason is probably similar to the reason why you started your show. I mean, in mainstream media coverage, there isn't a lot of room to do what you're doing. And that's basically what we're trying to do is talk about the things that are sort of taken uh, for granted as truths. And one of those things is just sort of this idea of U.S. military armed supremacy and the right that the U.S. has in doing that. And the idea to start a think tank is is probably a not interesting answer, but there are no leftist U.S. foreign policy think tanks, or at least as far as I can tell. So in a way, we are just responding to a gap in the market. When it comes to foreign policy, you mentioned there about how there's no left-wing foreign policy think tanks. Foreign policy on the whole is one of these really interesting areas in America, because often we talk about gridlock and how nothing gets done because the sides can't agree. But when it comes to foreign policy, if you take the name of the country that is being referenced in U.S. foreign policy, a lot of the time the approaches taken by each president is very similar. They have a lot of similarities, a lot of overlaps, a lot of clear comparisons and identical moments that have been taken. Why is foreign policy like that? Why is it the case that in America there is this consensus on foreign policy, just not the consensus individuals like yourself would like to see? I chalk that up in large part to the issue of empire. So in a lot of ways, the U.S. has had a very hostile relationship with Iran, and the policies really haven't differed that much from administration to administration. Um, and basically, I, I attribute that to the near continuous presence of U.S. military forces in the regional waterways that are near Iran, the Persian Gulf, the Gulf of Oman, the North Arabian Sea, Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, where there's been basically a near continuous U.S. military naval presence since the establishment of the U.S. Fifth Fleet, I think in Bahrain, since 1995. So under conditions of empire, everything sort of looks like a threat. And whatever observations 
that we see Iran doing are filtered through that lens of empire. So if they're moving their ships around, it immediately looks like a threat, while if we weren't occupying those waterways, it would seem a lot more innocuous. But since we are, we have a posture of hypervigilance that makes, again, everything seem like a threat. So regardless of the set of policies that a certain presidential candidate or electee walks into office with, they're walking into a structure that predisposes military responses just because the U.S. is everywhere. When it comes to the approach the U.S. takes, we often see issues emerging right at the very core when you look at places like the Pentagon, which has roughly $2.2 trillion in assets, that's coin figures on your website, and it consumes more than half of congressional discretionary spending. But until 2018, it had never undergone an agency-wide audit. When there is that little oversight and that little understanding from the American people because of that lack of oversight as to what's actually going on there, is that part of the issue here? The, there's this mindset that America has, as you were suggesting there, but beyond that, there's also the American people aren't able to know what's truly going on because it's being essentially hidden from view from them. Absolutely. Um, the U.S. public, uh, I mean, are basically treated like mushrooms when it comes to foreign policy. The establishment feeds us shit and keeps us in the dark. And one of the things that's so interesting about Pentagon spending is that it not only buys like a set of priorities, but those priorities don't really shift from year to year because they fuel conditions of empire. It sort of isn't designed to work itself out of a job. So the more money that goes into the Pentagon, the more it sort of reinforces the structure. And, you know, the Afghanistan papers were given a lot of um, attention in the media because it showed that U.S. military leadership was basically lying to the American people about progress in Afghanistan. But in many ways, it didn't really tell us anything we didn't know. And, and that way is sort of like the Pentagon Papers from the Vietnam War. It's like we knew this was a fraudulent enterprise. And I, I would say the best way to sum up uh, the U.S. public's understanding of what the U.S. military actually does with its time is the common phrase, thank you for your service, but with the addendum, whatever that means. So the U.S. knows that they're supposed to respect uh, the U.S. military and, quote-unquote, our troops, but they don't have a real understanding of what that institution actually does with its time, its institutional purpose, and what its strategic intent is. We see the a lot of U.S. foreign policy, and to be fair, other nations' foreign policy, is focused on the military aspects rather than the humanitarian side of things. So we'll see that often foreign policy is shaped around military intervention. It's not shaped around how can we best help those citizens. In fact, often when countries attempt to suggest it is about helping citizens, it's again framed we have to militarily intervene in this country in order to help those individuals. So 
Do you think that the U.S. has been too focused on this military foreign policy and not focused enough on the humanitarian foreign policy? I agree. I think that's a fair assessment. Um, and it's not like humanitarian discourse gets lost in U.S. military intervention. I mean, even from the right-wing neoconservative think tanks, it's all about helping the Iranian people and uh, oh, we need to save lives of the people being basically killed by the Assad regime in Syria or, or you know, wherever in Libya. But the problem is that because of the institutional imbalance between the Pentagon, the State Department, and USAID, we're in a situation where the U.S., says it's intent on saving lives, but it's doing nothing to make sure that those lives need not be saved in the first place. And, you know, going back to the sort of structural imbalance uh, between the Pentagon, State Department, USAID, the problem is that it really predisposes the response. So even if it's a humanitarian intervention, quote unquote, the U.S. military is really the only tool that can be used. So what we have is the Obama administration, for instance, specifically Ben Rhodes, said that the intervention in Syria wasn't it, – it was wrapped up in humanitarian concerns, but it was really chalked up to, quote-unquote, doing something. And when you have that sort of performative obligation – then it's just going to fit into the same structures that already exist. So even if the U.S. was concerned about humanitarianism as much as they say they are, it still is sort of a moot point in a way because they haven't done anything to make sure that those crises don't emerge in the first place, nor have they done anything to have the proper tools in place to make sure that it's multilateral, that it's legal, and that it's demilitarized. Part of the issue with addressing the problems that lead to a need for intervention in other countries or citizens in other countries needing support is issues that Americans back at home have, such as lack of health care, lack of affordable housing, the effects of climate change and the impact that's having, and inequality, conditions that make people unsafe all around the world, wherever those issues are happening. And that's why the Security Policy Reform Institute talks about how foreign policy starts at home. So how fundamental is it for Congress to look at their own priorities first in their own backyard before starting to think about how they should approach the issues that exist on an international scale? Really good question there. It's incredibly important because... You know, it comes down to credibility. So I feel silly a lot of the time talking about foreign policy because I'm really – what I'm trying to do is reform U.S. foreign policy, but I'm talking about foreign policy for a failed state. So if the U.S. is talking about responsibility to protect the humanitarian doctrine where, you know, outside powers are – given or they assume that they have the obligation and the right to intervene in other countries, 
it looks it's very unbecoming and strikes me as unseemly that they're talking about the humanitarian situation, the policies of a certain state that can't care for its citizens when they can't even do that on the home front. So if if um, the United States isn't able to provide health care for its citizens, and it certainly is able to, but it just is unwilling, it's hard to have any sort of credibility both at home or in the international community that it has the right to intervene in other places. So if you're not operating off of a consistent set of values, you're really doing sort of this ad hoc, very uh, nebulous um, form of policy that doesn't really reflect consistently uh, across boundaries. Is it not the case, though, that America is acting on a common set of values, just the wrong set of values here? That America, for example, has Guantanamo Bay still open, despite numerous times politicians promising to close that base, Guantanamo Bay, where it's alleged that detainees have been tortured, not that we know specifically everything that's gone on there. And the U.S. also uses surveillance technology to monitor its own citizens. Two things that... If we were talking about another country, the U.S. would be leaping at that country to intervene, saying that citizens can't live in a country where the government is detaining people without a court case and is surveilling people without their knowledge. Is this part of the problem? The U.S. is acting on a common set of values, but just the wrong set of values. That's true. But those values that the wrong set of values that they're acting on, I mean, you really hit on sort of the intersection between the domestic and the foreign. So the U.S. spies on its own citizens through the Patriot Act, but also has, you know, it's active in over 100 countries um, that are in part about managing and surveilling certain communities and certain sets of bodies on racial, class, ethnic lines, which is what the U.S. is doing with surveillance technology in the United States, based on communities that are identified as uh, black, as poor, as, quote unquote, problematic or dangerous. So the common set of values that the U.S. is working on, I, I think you're dead on. I mean, it's just it it is evident across borders, whether you're talking about U.S. domestic policy or foreign policy, that there is a consistent set of values that are working on um, that are that are at play here, um, but it is certainly the wrong set of values because it's operating along lines that I most clearly describe as class lines. So, in order for the U.S. to maintain its position atop international hierarchy, it must reinforce a certain social hierarchy at home. On your think tank's website, it states that, quote, in order to justify misguided and violent foreign policies, political elites rely on the presumption of American benevolence. Now, we've acknowledged it a fair amount in that conversation there, but is it finally time then to retire this image of America, the savior of the world? Oh, absolutely. And one of the key dynamics that I, I think you hit on there is that when the U.S. does something, it's perceived as being in the world's interest. So there's an equation going on between 
U.S. national security imperatives and the world security. While if any other rival power or any other country does the same thing or adopted a similar lens that resembled in similar policies being being enacted, then the U.S. would chalk it up to self-interest about selfish parochial empowerment. But from the U.S. perspective, regardless of whether you're a conservative or a liberal, you there is the justification is based on this notion of universal benevolence. And I think that ideal that's transmitted, you know, in the media, in government reports, in ostensibly technocratic think tank reports, that really sets up conditions of empire where it's sort of whatever whatever policies enacted or or um, pursued by empire, regardless of their nature, the baseline assumption is that this is something that is good, and that leads to policies where the U.S. can say, oh, we have to do something because there's that self-assured benevolence going on that they can just do whatever they want, really. When looking at the issue of foreign policy, at the moment, it, it's impossible not to talk about the current global pandemic that we're witnessing and the impact that foreign policy, not just recent foreign policy, but long-standing approaches to foreign policy has had on the way the world has responded to this pandemic. And recently, the UN Secretary General said during an interview with the BBC that a lack of coordination let the virus spread across the world. Each country approached the pandemic differently, taking different approaches and looking at it from different perspectives. Why do you think that lack of international cooperation on issues such as this has emerged? Because once the UN was seen as this force that countries would work with and work together in to address issues that affected all of them. But that seems to be absent now, as the UN Secretary General was indicating. I think it's sort of how the US views the UN. I mean, when the when the foreign policy elite in the United States, even before World War II ended, were designing this new League of Nations, they weren't looking at it in terms like the League of Nations was obviously like a very flawed institution and idea, but what it tried to do was bypass power politics while the UN, the second iteration of the thing, was more of a way for the US to dominate power politics. And its authors said that the US would use it to basically give the US public a veil of international cooperation when it was really after the same sort of imperialism that it's been after for, for long before that. Um, it was said that it would provide smaller countries an outlet to quote unquote blow off steam. <laughs> so its design was never really about cooperation from the US's perspective, it was about dominating power politics. And when you have that mindset so firmly entrenched in U.S. policy, we're not talking about cooperation. We're talking about domination. And when you're talking about domination, you interpret the world as a battlefield for military hardware 
And that has left us radically unprepared for something that can't be shot at or blown up with some sort of munition. That approach that the U.S. takes when it comes to non-military threats and, and their action on those, we've seen a trade war between the U.S. and China emerge before this recent healthcare crisis uh, has really taken over. That trade war has fallen off the front pages, but it's still an issue that exists. It's not going away. Until recently, it was, in fact, actually, arguably, Donald Trump's probably key policy priority. He saw it as an opportunity to create a big win by starting this feud and, in his mind, to then securing a favorable outcome from this manufactured crisis. Do you think trade wars such as the one Trump launched could be, in a way, beneficial to the U.S.? Or are they a mistake and just reflective of this colonialist imperialistic mindset that you've talked about previously where the U.S. believes it has the power to bully and push and shove other countries to do exactly what it wants, how it wants. I view the trade war in a similar way as, you know, any sort of political attack from one U.S. politician to another that they're being soft on another country. So Trump's Trump clearly doesn't have any idea what he's talking about in general, but especially as it relates to military strategy. So I think his trade war was really his just best attempt at uh, finding a spot in that establishment narrative where it's an imperative to be tough on China. As far as the intricacies of trade wars and who it's good for, as far as I can tell, Trump's trade war was bad for everyone, um, but I really sort of view it in line with every other U.S. policy towards China, where it's a policy of confrontation to prove that one U.S. political party is is more willing to, quote-unquote, stand up to a rising Chinese power, which I just don't view as – if you're doing it for to score political points – Chances are, and I think it's clear in this case, that the working class loses, regardless of whether you're in the rust belt of the United States, which is where I am right now, or in or if you're in some in Ch or if you're in some Chinese province. The Security Policy Reform Institute has created a handbook called Security Fallacies, how the military think tanks and press promote bad policy and make Americans poor, scared uh, and unsafe. And it obviously addresses some of the, the key issues that the Institute, the think tank, believes in and wants to address some of the issues that you've talked about here. Could you tell us a bit about that handbook and what you hope people will take away from that? I think the handbook is, is such a useful tool, and it was authored by uh, one of the other co-founders, Ian Larson, who has a background in journalism. And one of the things is just facts on the ground, realities are always interpreted in a certain way. So the theoretical approach, the methodological approach to covering a certain thing serve a certain set of interests depending on what approach you adopt towards a situation. And whether it's media or think tanks, 
a lot of these institutions are funded by corporate donors, and that's true with media and think tanks. And in the case of think tanks, oftentimes weapons manufacturers too. So the way a certain issue is covered is really dependent on who the information is supposed to be for. And a lot of the coverage reflects that a lot of the coverage um, really shows that it's for their donors and it's not for de-escalating a certain situation or asking, okay, what's best for the global working class? What's best for the U.S. population? What's best for the Iranian population or the Chinese population? It's about what are the donors interested in hearing? And most of the time they're interested in hearing something escalatory, something fun, something exciting, when really it's just at the root of it, what's best for the working class are really boring public health answers. That approach to addressing these issues, and obviously donors and the individuals that are pumping money into politicians' campaigns, their coffers, has a huge impact on foreign policy and the approach that politicians choose to take. For example, we see individuals from military organizations and military groups pushing money to politicians in order to get them to hand them contracts for military equipment. Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, her brother, Eric Prince, has American private military company called Blackwater, which has received federal contracts from the US government. It's provided services to the CIA. It's got millions and millions and millions of dollars of contracts from the State Department. Organizations like Blackwater and, and others, they're influencing these politicians. So is that something where it comes down to the money that's in politics, that really when people are accepting this money, when they're getting those payments, it really does have a significant impact on the foreign policy these individuals choose to take? Absolutely right. And that's sort of one of the most overt expressions of how there's very twisted relationships between politicians and private industry, because, you know, Eric Prince is, uh, whatever the name of his private army is called, I think it's actually called like Academy now or something with an I. So it's very cool and very like iPhone-y. I think that, again, that's one of the more overt expressions, but one of the things that gets lost is sort of the more, kind of elementary or so boring it sort of deters attention that you know weapons manufacturers private military contractors they donate money to think tanks and politicians and what that is is it's it's not as much about corruption per se on that sort of very you know trump level obvious corruption but in a way that just reinforces a certain discourse that makes contracting out to private military companies, um, inflating the budgets of weapons manufacturers seem normal, appropriate, or even natural. Finally, do you think there are lessons that we can learn? You've obviously been fairly critical of the approach that the U.S. has taken to foreign policy over the years, but are there any moments that you 
can see in U.S. foreign policy that you would take a positive lesson away from and you would say what was done there is something that we can either build on and increase in, and turn into something positive or, or at the very least something that we can learn going forward so mistakes aren't made in the future. Again, the U.S. created the U.N. for a reason, but there is an international institution and it needs major reforms, but there is something to look forward to in that regard, that there is a structure in place, albeit seriously flawed, for countries to cooperate, to speak to one another, and to de-escalate. Right now it's not used for that, but there is a framework in place where cooperation is possible. So in large part, the usefulness of any sort of international institution is based on how the U.S. approaches the world in general, but because that's in our hands as the U.S. public and as a U.S. government, there is hope because we are in control of improving those international structures. Tell people where they can find more about your work and what you're doing. I, I think, first off, a really good way to support us, if you're interested, is to support independent media like this show, which is patreon.com slash the Hardy Report. Uh, a more direct way is to kind of help us do more stuff. And the best way to do that is to help our think tank become self-sustaining. Again, this is really an experiment to see if a think tank that's designed to be everything that establishment think tanks are not, mainly, you know, grassroots funded, aka for the people, by the people, um, the best way to help that experiment out and to show that this model is sustainable is to help us out with a small donation. And you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash spry. Um, but if you're like me and don't have a lot to give, check out our stuff. You can see our publications on securityreform.org. You can follow us on Twitter at, at security underscore reform or on Facebook uh, under the tag at left foreign policy uh, and uh, stay alive, stay healthy. That's the best thing that you can do. Stephen Semler, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Edward. This was my first podcast appearance. That was Stephen Semler, the co-founder of the Security Policy Reform Institute. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Stephen Semler, the Security Policy Reform Institute at security underscore reform and at securityreform.org. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye. 